Hello and welcome to episode number 13 of the J.S. Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to investigate Bach's four orchestral suites. This group of four multi-movement works, which Bach himself would have called simply overtures, each features an opening overture of substantial length followed by a group of mostly 18th century dances, all of which demonstrate characteristic meters, rhythms, and melody types. As any of a number of commentators have pointed out, Bach here is providing idealized or somewhat abstracted versions of these dances, and it's unlikely that any of this music was actually danced to. And of course, Bach is just one in a long line of composers ranging from the 16th century to the present to base concert music on idealized or interpreted dance styles. Still, there's no question in my mind that these suites represent some of the greatest examples of their kind produced in any century. We'll start with taking a look at the first of these orchestral suites in C major, BWV 1066, composed probably in Leipzig for the Collegium Musicum we've mentioned before. But once again, there is some debate as to when these orchestral suites were written. Some scholars suggest that the first and fourth, and perhaps even the second, may well have existed in earlier versions when Bach was employed at the court of Kirten. All of these suites begin with a French overture, a label which in this case implies a very specific set of musical characteristics. When speaking of stylistic influences on the instrumental music of the young Bach, most focus quite reasonably on his northern German precursors, and when Bach arrives at Weimar, perhaps a little before, the influence of Italian instrumental music, especially so because we know Bach spent a fair amount of time carefully transcribing and often arranging pieces of music by Vivaldi, Corelli, and his other favorites. But French music also makes its early imprint on Bach, a little bit more difficult to trace perhaps, but still notable. And nowhere is that more evident than in his use of the French overture style and the French versions of several of the dances he incorporates into these suites. But we don't necessarily have to go back to the earlier French masters like Jean-Baptiste Lully as possible models for Bach, since the French overture style was widely adopted by European composers of several nationalities, including English and German. In fact, the noted Bach scholar Malcolm Boyd suggests that Bach probably looked more to the many French overtures composed by his associate Hellemann and other fellow Germans for inspiration rather than any specific French models. At any rate, Bach's first French overture for two oboes and bassoon along with the standard complement of strings and continuo shows many of the traditional characteristics associated with the form. A slow, majestic, or sometimes described as pompous, opening section, primarily homophonic in texture, replete with dotted rhythms of various sorts, most often dotted 8th, 16th note patterns in this case, which are most obvious in the bassoon and continuo bass. This is followed by a quicker fugal section, followed by the return of the slower opening section, sometimes varied and abbreviated. All sections may be repeated, but the final repeat is seldom taken in modern performances. The opening theme begins with a sustained note followed by a flow of 16th notes starting on the weak part of the beat, a typical gesture in the French overture style. The texture is quite full, five independent parts at times, and it's harmonically conventional for the most part, although Bach does make an effective use of suspensions both in the bass and upper voices. Here are the opening bars. Thank you. 
I said a minute ago that French overtures were, on the whole, primarily homophonic in texture, but you could hear from my example that the inner parts and the bass line of Bach's orchestral texture do demonstrate some notable independence from time to time, especially the lower parts filling in as the melody sustains above it. After the initial 16-bar section repeats, we launch into a faster-moving fugal section, now two beats to the bar with a subject introduced by the two oboes and first violins in unison that begins with three repeated eighth notes and quickly goes on to mix eighths and sixteenths in a lively and vigorous melody that also mixes triadic leaps with scale-wise passages and again makes a prominent use of dotted eighth and sixteenth note patterns. The first imitation comes quickly, after just a bar and a half, the second violin entering at the fifth, although actually an octave lower, the viola is coming next and bassoon and continual bass together after that. The fugal imitation isn't continuous. Most fugal sections have episodic passages, which serve at least briefly to break up the imitative entries, but the texture remains busy with sequential spinning out of earlier motives, never completely devoid of the dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms, I should add, until the oboes join together to introduce the fugal subject once again at the original pitch level. Does this new appearance of the subject start off a new round of imitation? Yes and no. The second oboe almost immediately comes in with the fugal theme of third lower, which will be copied by the first oboe a bar and a half later. But the context has been completely transformed. The texture is reduced to a trio, even indicated as such in the score, featuring the two oboes with the bassoon providing the bass line. And for five bars, we hear a perfect example of how Bach incorporates, even into an orchestral suite, the traditional concerto-like contrast between the large group, the 2D or ripieno section, and the small group, the concertino or solo group. In fact, this little five-bar excursion by the trio of winds is one of the most attractive passages in the entire movement in part because it represents such a dramatic break with the thickness of the previous textures, but also because of the effectiveness of the brief new suspension-based countermelody which the first oboe introduces, even as the second oboe is once again trotting out the familiar fugue theme, and the bassoon is chugging away on sixteenth-note scale passages beneath it. This trio section, charming though it is, does not last very long. The rest of the strings enter one at a time with, not surprisingly, the familiar fugue theme, now having shifted to A minor, while the oboes engage in a flashy new idea based initially on ascending sixteenth notes. But it soon becomes clear that, as the whole orchestra returns, another fugal exposition will come with it. We're going to hear an example from the beginning of the first fugal exposition to the beginning of the second. the opening section unfolds, Bach continues to be interested in breaking up the ongoing contrapuntal textures with the concerto-like playing off of the larger ensemble against the smaller solo groups in repeated trio passages. Subsequent trio passages do not necessarily replicate the first. 
In the second, the oboes introduced a sprightly new descending theme, drawn from the fourth bar of the original fugue subject, which is bandied about between the three soloists, this time with ample support from the strings. And, just as in Bach's concertos, the passages featuring the soloists often modulate, sometimes to surprisingly distant keys, although usually only briefly. These are the basic and very effective ingredients of the movement. Fugal sections return with the delightful little trio sections breaking them up and providing much-needed relief from their textural density. And after a great deal of back and forth, some of which occurs quite rapidly, we return to the more stately pace of the opening of the movement with the final section of the piece. It's not a duplication of the first section, but clearly related to it, and which serves the same purpose, a stately evocation of regal dignity. This substantial opening movement, at least ten minutes in performance, is followed by a series of less substantial but still attractive dances, the first of which is a Koran, which, in a typical suite of dances, usually follows an opening aleman. In the French version of the dance heard here, the meter is 3-2, although the inner parts suggest a duple division of the measure from time to time, adding a little metric subtlety into the mix. As in the case with each of the dances in this group, the form is binary with two distinct repeated sections, the second of which is longer than the first, and the key remains C major. The main theme of the first of the two sections, eight bars long, is played by oboes and first violin, while the viola often doubles the melody in sixths, and the second violin, rhythmically independent from the first, echoes the first's opening motive and then proceeds to fill in the harmony with its own, somewhat angular, countermelody. Beginning with a pickup note like most courants, the first section employs a variety of rhythmic values, with dotted notes playing an important role. The melody moves mostly by step, carefully balancing ascending and descending motion. After cadencing on C major halfway through the section, Bach moves quickly toward G major, the key of the dominant, while referencing the melodic material heard in the third measure along the way. Let's hear the first eight-bar section. The second section, at 20 bars, is quite a bit longer than the first. It begins melodically with the same basic shape as the first section, at least initially, but exhibits a far different harmonic personality, starting on G major, where the first section concluded, but moving quickly to D minor and staying there for several bars before moving on to A minor. After finally moving back to C major, we hear a mix of thematic elements, some new, but several that harken back to the first section of the Courant. In fact, the last eight bars of the second section present an almost exact duplication of the original first section melody, although it soon wanders off in a series of sequential repetitions before finally cadencing back in C major to finish off the movement. But even where there are melodic similarities between the two sections, not everything is identical, of course. The bassoon and continual bass now take on the function of periodically echoing the melody and keeping the eighth note momentum going, while the melody sustains longer notes. Still, it's clear that despite Bach's desire to introduce some variety into these simple dance movements, the emphasis is largely on the motivic integration between the two parts. We'll hear the second section of the Quran, although again without the repeat.
A gavotte comes next, known as a courtly dance in duple meter, with an upbeat of two quarters and with phrases often ending in the middle of a measure. Bach's version shows all of these traditional characteristics with a clever, almost jaunty tune that exhibits a great deal of repetition of characteristic rhythmic and melodic motives along the way. For example, in the first of two sections, bars one and three are clearly related, and bars five and six, for example, are basically a sequential repetition of bars three and four. Here is the first section of the Gavotte. Typical of binary forms such as these, the first section comes to a close in G major, the key of the dominant. The second section, again twice the length of the first, moves quickly to D minor and introduces a few new ideas, including one unexpected ascending leap, in the first couple of measures, but just three bars in, we're back to familiar melodic motives as we move toward A minor. The second half of the second section does introduce one new ascending melodic motive, which is promptly sequenced, but after a few mildly surprising harmonic quirks, eventually makes its way back to C major. This segues immediately into Gavotte number two, which serves effectively as a trio, with the oboes and bassoon now dominating the melodic activity. Although it begins with what initially appears to be a new ascending motive by the oboes, many of the melodic ideas continue to derive from the second half of the first Gavotte. The first section of Gavotte number two, again begins in C major, ends up in G major, and the second section, not surprisingly, references the same motives as we move quickly to D minor. As always, there are new twists and variants introduced, so the melodic material, while familiar sounding, still manages to sound fresh. Here's a bit of the second gavotte. A de sign takes us back to repeat gavotte number one, and we then head into new territory with a forlen, or in English simply forlane, a dance movement of Italian origin, which makes a rare appearance in a dance suite of this sort, probably the only time Bach made use of it. It provides a nice contrast to what has come before, however, with its 6-4 meter divided into two main beats, those further subdivided into three each, although starting out with a relatively broad melodic gesture, the melody, played together by oboes and first violins, is replete with dotted quarter-eighth-note combinations and, more uniquely, floats over a constant flow of running eighth notes provided by the second violins and violas. This, combined with constant reiterations of the tonic note in the bassoon and continual bass in the first several bars, give the first section of the Forlant a unique character.
second longer section is a bit more harmonically varied than the first, with a more active bass line, but the Ferlen maintains its distinctive character throughout. This unusual Ferlen is followed by a rather common dance, the minuet. We may associate them primarily with the later 18th century, for example, some of the famous Haydn minuets from his symphonies are string quartets, but Bach included minuets in three of his four orchestral suites. Bach's minuets are naturally in 3-4 time and usually have a more sedate feel to them, particularly after the comparatively rowdy Forlen. The first section of the minuet, ending on the dominant as usual, begins with a simple and rather repetitive melody played by the oboes and first violin. The second section is longer, and except for the introduction of new trills, mostly on the second beat of the measure, generally replicates the first, although now starting on dominant and flirting briefly with other tonal areas before returning to tonic. After the second section of Minuet number 1 is repeated, we go directly to Minuet 2. As was the case for Gavotte number 2, this second Minuet serves as a trio of sorts, with the texture reduced and the dynamic level dropping down to piano. But there is something of a twist this time. The three woodwinds, oboes and bassoon, aren't featured as was the case in the second Gavotte, but rather the strings, four parts this time, two violins, viola, and continual bass, take over with the woodwinds temporarily sidelined. It's another very simple and rather repetitive melody, consisting largely of quarter notes broken up by the occasional half note. That is to say, considerably less active, rhythmically speaking, than Minuet 1, although its many legato slurs, not found in the first Minuet, do add a new dimension. Here's the first section of Minuet 2. The second section of Minuet 2 does get a little less predictable and more interesting, but the overall effect is still far from riveting. But of course, the purpose of this second Minuet, the more subdued trio as it were, is to provide a foil to Minuet 1. So, when it returns, it will sound more robust, more complex, and more interesting. A pair of bourrées come next. These are duple-meter dances, elegant but lively. The first bourrée begins with a dynamic melody marked by infectious rhythms in the accompanying parts as well as in the melody, sweeping scale-wise motives, and, as usual, a tightly integrated structure. Here's the first section of bourrée number one. The second section begins in a similar fashion, adjusted for the new key, of course, which moves quickly to D minor, but subtle changes, including increased rhythmic activity in the bassoon and continual bass, even as it settles back into C major, makes it even more dynamic than the first. The 
The second beret functions as a trio again in the mode of Gavotte No. 2, the three woodwinds featured exclusively. Some of the rhythmic ideas from Boray 1 are echoed, but new melodic shapes and ornaments are introduced as well, and these elements, along with the shift to C minor, give it a fresh personality. The second section of Boray No. 2 reverts to the melodic shapes of Boray No. 1 to some extent, but as usual for Bach, he seems to reinvent them before our ears, sounding almost brand new in part because of a new, rather nervous and jumpy bassoon part that lends a rustless quality to the whole section. The final dance in Bach's first orchestral suite is a passe-pied, and once again there are two of them, the second again providing a nice contrast to the first, after which the first is repeated. This is another triple-meter dance, sometimes described as a faster minuet. The first of the two starts with an anacrusis or pickup note on the fifth of the scale, which leaps its way up a tonic triad before first sweeping up and then down the scale in eighth notes, and with strategic ties across the bar, giving it a distinctive rhythmic identity. Following the pattern we've now observed several times, the second section, longer than the first, begins in the dominant and makes brief visits to other tonal centers while quoting, often in varied form, many of the motives heard in the first section. The second passe-pied differs from the first not in its featured instrumentation or texture, but in its flow, a series of near-continuous undulating eighth notes in the oboes, while violins and viola quote the first passe-pied's theme against it. We'll hear the first section. Once again, the second section is more than twice as long as the first and spends quite a bit of time in the key of D minor before cadencing on C and heading back to the first past PA. Finishing off the entire suite with a repeat of Pass PA 1 might be thought of as a rather low-key conclusion to the work as a whole, but perfectly in keeping with tradition with a suite of this sort. Bach's second orchestral suite, number 2 in B minor, BWV 1067, has a very different personality than the first. The fact that it's in a minor key suggests that immediately, of course, but there are other crucial differences, not the least being that there's a single designated flute soloist for this work and the appearance of a designated solo instrument that functions as such in at least parts of multiple movements makes it clear that the concerto principle will be in even greater evidence here than it was for the orchestral suite in C major. The opening overture is a formidable one, regal like most French overtures, but serious, perhaps even grave. Of course, the key, B minor, has something to do with that, but there is a weight here that goes beyond the matter of key. 
The opening motive dominates much of the first section. Dotted figures and trills abound once again, and the melody, played by flute and violin one, moves slowly and ceremoniously up the scale before leaping boldly up a sixth to a dissonant note, all over a tonic pedal in the continual bass. After a single bar, the action shifts to the lower voices, the bass line imitating the melodic activity of the first measure, harmonized by the viola and violin too. The distinctive opening rhythmic figure, two thirty-second notes prefacing and following a dotted eighth note, returns in the upper voices and, thereafter, spreads throughout the texture, sometimes in ornamented form and on various pitch levels. By the fifth measure, we are moving steadfastly toward E minor and, two bars later, toward D major. But the dotted figures, now sometimes simplified to dotted eighth-sixteenth note patterns in the upper voices, continues to dominate. We'll hear the first four bars. Our excerpt concluded just at the point where the D major key was solidly confirmed and further modulations to A major and again to E minor were about to start. Some variants of earlier motives and some new motivic elements are introduced in various parts, but the flow is consistent and well integrated. Those key motives from the first two bars recur constantly throughout the entire 20-bar section. After a repeat of the first slower section, we move to a faster two beats in a bar tempo and the fugal section is introduced. Played by the flute and violin one, the subject is short and fairly simple, but quite distinctive rhythmically with its short, short, long, short, short pattern. Here's an example of just the fugue subject, the first four bars. After the flute and violin one introduce the subject, the second violins come in at the fifth after four bars, with the violas and continual bass following suit. Just as the second violins are finishing their imitation of the subject, and right before the violas begin theirs, the flute and first violin introduce a new motive in their counter-melody, a rather jumpy one, with staccato articulations that will play an important role in various guises later in this section of the overture. Here's a simplified version of that motive. Here then is the beginning of the faster fugal section, the actual recording this time. After the fugal invitation is played out, the subject returns, but soon gives way to sequential scale passages as we move toward the first solo section, 
back in B minor after some brief flirtations with other key areas. When the solo flute enters, it does so against a severely thinned-down texture. Initially, all we hear against the flute are quiet little staccato arpeggios played by the first violins. The solo flute does not make any direct reference to the fugue subject, but rather introduces its own melodic ideas, although those ideas are, at least initially, somewhat generic, flowing scale passages and arpeggio-based figuration patterns again. Eventually, the texture fills up a bit, and in doing so references the staccato countermelody I mentioned earlier, and, after nine bars, a variant of the fugue subject pops up in the bass. Meanwhile, we modulate a bit, first to F-sharp minor and then to E minor, as the first solo section comes to a close. At that point, a clearly marked 2D section is introduced in G major. The dynamics jump up to forte, and the entire orchestra is engaged, the solo flute back to doubling the first violins. The fugue subject makes a reappearance at the beginning of the 2D section, followed by a single imitative entry in the bass, but after a little spinning out, we're introduced to another solo section in D major, with the solo flute carrying on much as before. This solo section is a bit shorter at only eight bars, after which the 2D section returns, this time in E minor, at least initially, with the fugue subject with it. This exposition manages to shift gears tonally in midstream, modulating back to B minor along the way, before yielding again to the solo flute in what appears at first to be a repeat of the first solo flute episode. But in the end, this episode goes its own way, heading toward D major. Shortly thereafter, the dance between the 2D sections and solo sections speeds up, with brief 2D sections followed by brief solo sections. At this point, the solo sections are probably more interesting, both in terms of textural and harmonic variety, but in the end, it's naturally a final 2D passage that drives us to the end of the middle section and ultimately takes us back to the slow introduction. This version of the slow introduction resembles the first in essence, if not in detail. The first violins remain most faithful to the opening melodic statement, with the flute now weaving a decorative countermelody above it, which itself borrows from some of the original motivic material. As in the opening slow section, the main thematic idea is echoed in the other parts as we proceed through to the end of the movement. It's a perfectly proper French overture in its basic structure, but it's much more than that, in part because of the clever interplay between the flute soloists and the tutti sections, especially in the faster, fugal-oriented middle section. We'll hear the end of the fugal section going into the final slow section. I referred a number of times to these orchestral suites as beginning with a French overture followed by a series of dances. But although that is mostly true, the fact is that the later movements are not always, strictly speaking, dances. A case in point is the next movement in this work, a rondeau. This is not a dance in the sense that it is identified by specific rhythmic mannerisms. 
It is rather what is often referred to, at least in earlier manifestations, as a fixed form. The typical rondo has a main theme or refrain, which is followed by an episode or contrasting section, sometimes called a couplet. The refrain then repeats, followed by a new contrasting section, after which the refrain repeats again. There are variations of this form, and, rather typically for Bach, this particular example does not break down quite as neatly as my description would suggest. The rondo begins in B minor, as does every movement that follows the overture, and with a rather distinctive refrain theme played by flute and first violins. The first motive we hear begins with two-quarter pickup notes, the first starting on D, the third of the scale, and the second a half-step lower. Then it drops rather dramatically a perfect fifth to a half-note on the fifth note of the scale. The next measure duplicates this pattern, but starting at a step higher. We'll call this motive A. As usual, these things are easier to hear than to describe, and I'll play an example in a minute. One of the other interesting things about the refrain theme is the degree to which the accompanying parts are active and independent. In Baroque music, we're used to the bass part being active and often independent, as it is here, but in many of the simpler dances we've encountered to this point, the textures have been straightforwardly homophonic, with the inner voices being pretty simple, just filling in the harmony without showing too much independence. But that's not the case here. For in this opening two-bar motive, the second violins show great independence, their line moving mostly in contrary motion to the melody doubled by the flute and first violins, and representing, for all intents and purposes, an alternative melody, which crosses over the flute-violin line and finishes on top of it. The result of all this is that, even when what we might think of as the primary melody, doubled by flute and violin one, pauses on a half note, the melodic activity never really stops, or even pauses, because it's filled in elsewhere. Here's a simplified example. This first motive yields quickly to another, which is rather less distinctive because it's based on an undulating scale fragment, but still proves to be important as the rondeau progresses. We'll call this motive B, and like the first, it begins and ends in the middle of the measure, very much like the phrases we heard in Bach's Gavotte in the first orchestral suite. This new motive features the flute and violin one still playing together, and violin two doubling their line a third lower. Here's a simplified version of the second motive. You'll probably notice how the second motive leads right back to a repeat of the first. Now, here's the entire eight-bar refrain in an actual recording. The refrain is repeated and then followed by the first episode, which offers up a brand new theme in E minor, or at least what starts out as a brand new theme, one which alternates slurred eighth notes with staccato quarter notes. Here's a simplified example. But after four bars, this new theme transitions into very familiar territory, hearkening back to the beginning of the refrain. It's not an exact repetition, of course, and soon spins off into a series of expressive, long-held suspensions in the upper parts against an extension of motive B in the violas. 
Here, then, is the first episode in an actual performance. As you can hear from my example, after the final four bars of the first episode have made their way back to B minor, the refrain theme returns in its original form for eight bars. After that, things begin to change a little. Mode of B, that series of undulating scale fragments, is spun out and soon the flute, now in D major, splits off from the first violins to make its first solo flight against a reduced, suspension-laden texture, and we realize we're in the second episode. But while this episode is by no means identical to the first, it does share some similarities, most notably some oblique references to the refrain theme, now transformed but clearly recognizable. And when the key shifts again, this time to F-sharp major, there's a return of the original episode theme, staccato quarter notes and all. But after five bars and a return to B minor, we hear the original refrain once again to close out the movement. The next movement is a sarabande. Known for its slow triple meter, usually in 3-4 time and dignified style, the dance is usually devoid of upbeats, at least in the earlier stages of its development, but Bach here uses a single pickup note to begin each section. The sarabande is also known rhythmically for accented or prolonged notes on the second beat of the measure, a characteristic Bach follows sporadically here, and also weak beat cadences, not particularly in evidence in Bach's version. The first half opens with an elegant but restrained and slow-moving melody shared by the flute and first violins and marked by multiple grace notes that generate accented dissonances, especially in the flute part. It employs a variety of rhythmic and melodic motives with some repetition from the first phrase to the second, but the most distinctive feature is the canonic imitation that occurs between the flute and violin one melody and the bass line a twelfth lower. One doesn't necessarily expect a full-fledged canon in a sarabande, but Bach is a world unto himself in such matters. Here's a highly simplified example of the first few bars isolating the canonic imitation. Here are the first 16 bars in an actual performance. After a repeat of the first section, the second section of the Serban, while not simply a duplication of the first in the new key of F-sharp major, draws on many of the same motives while introducing some variants and a few new ideas of its own, while also maintaining the canonic imitation.
As in Bach's first orchestral suite, there are a pair of bourrées, and these resemble the first ones in some respects, although a new wrinkle or two has been added. The first of the two is brisk and energetic, and launches into its initial melodic statement with the leap of an ascending fourth. The theme uses a variety of rhythmic figures, but the most important is revealed immediately, a half note tied to an eighth, followed by three ascending eighth notes. <laughs> The half note in the flute and violin one melody is filled in by movement in the three other string parts, the result being a constant pulsing of the quarter note beat. Even though the melody seems quite varied and exhibits the strong sense of direction, the bass line is unusually repetitive. Bach basically marches up and down the first three notes of a B minor scale for the opening six bars, breaking the pattern only to secure a modulation to D major in the last two. Following a pattern we've noted before, the second section of the bourrée, now in D major but soon hinting at E minor, begins by referencing the opening motive and proceeding for the next seven bars, not by reproducing the first section of the movement, there are, after all, a few new or at least somewhat new ideas introduced here and there, but in a manner that is clearly informed by and borrows extensively from that first section. The next eight bars of the second section are, as usual, a bit different. Back in B minor, the opening four bars make much of that initial rhythmic motive I referred to a short while ago, that half note tied to an eighth followed by three more eighths. The melodic shape is quite a bit different this time around, but the reference is unmistakable. There's a little more harmonic tension in this section, but the original bass line, the one marching up and down the first three notes of the scale, is completely intact until it, once again, breaks rank to bring about an emphatic cadence in B minor to end the movement. Here's the second section of the bourrée, all 16 bars of it. The second bourrée can again be heard as something of a trio to the first. The texture is markedly thinner, and the solo flute in its opening repeated four-bar phrase dominates with a line of flowing eighth notes. The first violin's counterpoint against this flute line is, on the other hand, quite angular and full of leaps, some of which spike higher than the flute's melody. A polonaise comes next. This is not exactly the polonaise of Chopin's period, although it is in 3-4 time, in a stately tempo that feels almost more like six beats to the measure in this case, and repeats characteristic rhythms, often based on the opening dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythm, with a staccato marking giving the figure a distinctive flair. The melody of the opening four-bar phrase, which is immediately repeated, is shared by flute and first violins, the former an octave higher, while the other strings in continual bass march through chordal arpeggios beneath it. Already in D major by the fifth bar, the second section proceeds in a similar manner for the first two bars, but avoids predictability by adding a new sixteenth note tail in the fourth bar, 
The last four bars are a varied repeat of the first four, but now landing on the original tonic of B minor. We'll hear both sections. This is now followed by a double, basically a variation on the initial theme by the flute played against the theme itself. It's here that the flute soloist shines, operating against only the original melody now shifted down to the cello and accompanying continual chords. The flute soloist, hovering above this minimal accompaniment, occasionally references the original melodic material and, of course, always the original harmonic progression, but spends most of its time indulging in typical virtuoso figuration patterns, 16th note arpeggio patterns, and 32nd note scale-wise swirls. And while there's nothing inherently remarkable about the flute's flight of fancy, it makes an excellent contrast with the slightly blocky texture heard at the beginning of the Polonaise, which, when it returns via the da capo symbol, now seems even fuller sounding and more resonant than ever. Here's the flute-dominated double, which eventually leads back to a repeat of the original Polonaise theme. This somewhat unusual polonaise is followed by a very common dance movement in this context, a minuet, two of which were included in Bach's first orchestral suite. In 3-4 time and two sections as usual, the first section opens with its most distinctive and important motive, four ascending eighth notes that begin on the tonic and quickly reach up an octave before falling back to a lower sustained note, prefaced by a rather poignant-sounding appoggiatura or accented non-harmonic tone. This strong, primarily ascending idea, which is immediately echoed by a similar motive in the bass, is balanced after two measures by a gradually descending shape. The next four bars are taken up by a sequentially repeated pattern of eighth notes and a cadence on the dominant. Here are the first eight bars.
The second section, twice as long as the first, starts on the dominant but modulates quickly back to B minor, although it does flirt with other tonal centers, notably D major and E minor, along the way. Like the first section, it makes an effective use of staccato articulations, but more importantly, makes a conspicuous exploitation of the opening motive of the movement, repeating it four times in the space of 16 bars, on different pitch levels, and once in inverted form. Here's the second section. It's an unassuming minuet, but an effective one, and sets up the final movement in the suite perfectly. And that final movement, a Bedinari, is far from common in the typical Baroque suite, although it's not unprecedented, and Telemann and others are known to have included them as well on occasion. The term itself is often described as an alternative title for a scherzo-like movement, one which, if not exactly a joke, is certainly gay and light-hearted. In fact, this is an excellent example of how a minor key movement and a fast triple meter like so many scherzos, can sound playful, even jocular. The opening bars of the first section feature the flute, once again behaving like an actual soloist, supported primarily by staccato chords in the strings and continuo. It features a tune that begins with a rhythmically distinctive descent down a B minor triad in the first two measures. The next two bars keep the rhythmic momentum going with a series of sixteenths, beginning this time with an ascending B minor triad before undulating crisply around and above the tonic. Here's a simplified version of the first four bars. As the first section proceeds, the flute shares the primary melodic interest briefly with first violins and cellos, which take up the jaunty, long, short, short, long rhythmic figures of the opening bar. But the flute generally dominates the proceedings with a flurry of 16th note passages derived from bar four of the example I just played, as we dash through a series of chromatic chords which come to rest on F-sharp minor at the end of the section. Here's an actual performance of the first section, 16 bars in all. The second section begins with our now very familiar opening motive, but proceeds this time not to the 16th note flurry I referred to earlier, but to a variant of that opening motive which Bach uses to engineer two quick and rather clever modulations, the first a very brief one to E minor and shortly thereafter to D major. It's not unusual for Bach to engage in rapid-fire fluctuations in tonal centers at this point in the second section of these dances. We've certainly seen it before but here the effect is even more dazzling than usual. I should mention at this point that a lot of music theorists would hesitate to label rapid key changes of this sort as actual modulations, because they go by so quickly, and in some cases the cadences that establish them may not be considered sufficiently authoritative. Some would prefer the term tonicization, meaning the composer briefly establishes some other chord as a new tonic presumably en route to a more stable tonal goal. But whatever term is applied here and elsewhere, the rapid switch 
from one tonal center to another is one of the elements that guarantees that the momentum never flags, even when simple melodic ideas return again and again. Here is the entire 24-bar section without repeat as usual. It's a great little movement with an abundance of character and finishes off Bach's second orchestral suite with a flair. That's it for now. In the next episode, we'll look at the remaining two Bach orchestral suites, numbers three and four, both in D major.